Section two of France in the nineteenth century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the nineteenth century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter one. Charles the tenth and the days of July. Part two. As we have seen, these ordonnances, even in foreign countries, spread dismay. The revolution that ensued was the revolution of the great bankers and the businessmen, the haute bourgeoisie. In general, revolutions are opposed by the moneyed classes, but this was a revolution effected by them to save themselves and their property from such an outbreak as came forty years later, which we call the Commune. The working classes had little to do with the revolution of 1830, except indeed to fight for it, nor had they much to do with the revolution of 1848. It was the moneyed men of France who saw that the resuscitated principles of the old regime had been stretched to their very uttermost all over Europe, and that if they did not check them by a well-conducted revolution, worse would be sure to come. On July 26, 1830, the ordonnance appeared. The working classes seemed to hear of them without emotion, but their effect on all those who had any stake in the prosperity of the country was very great. By nightfall the agitation had spread in Paris to all classes. King Charles X was at Saint-Cloud, apparently apprehending no popular outbreak. No military preparations in case of disturbances had been made, though on the morning of the 26th the Duc d'Angoulême sent word to Marshal Marmont to take command of the troops in Paris, quote, as there might be some windows broken during the day, end quote. The next morning trouble was begun by the journeyman printers, who, as the newspapers on which they worked had been prohibited, were sent home from their printing offices. Before long they were joined by others, notably by the cadets from the Polytechnic School. Casimir Perrier and Lafitte were considered chiefs of the revolution. The cry was everywhere, Vive la Charte, a compendium that had been drawn up of the franchises and privileges of Frenchmen. M. Thiers, then young, counselled moderation in the emergency. On July 28 the tricolored flag was again unfurled in Paris, those colors dear to Frenchmen, who had long hated the white flag which represented in their eyes despotism and the rule of the Bourbons. The National Guard, or militia, was called out, and the populace began erecting barricades. It is surprising how rapidly in an emergency a barricade can be formed. A carriage or two is overturned, furniture is brought out from neighboring houses, a large tree, if available, is cut down, and the whole is strengthened with paving-stones. By night all Paris had become a field of battle. In vain Marshal Marmont had sent courier after courier to Saint-Cloud, imploring the king and his ministers to do something that might allay the fury of the people. No answer was returned. The marshal went himself at last. And the king, after listening to his representation of the state of Paris, said calmly, quote, Then it is really a revolt. Quote, no, sire, replied Marmont, it is not a revolt, but a revolution. End quote. As soon as the idea of ruin broke upon the royal household, everything at Saint-Cloud became confusion and despair. The Duchesse de Berry wanted to take her son, the Duc de Bordeaux, into Paris, hoping that the people would rally round a woman and the young heir to the throne. Some implored the king to treat with the insurgents, some to put himself at the head of his troops, some to sacrifice the ordonnance and the most obnoxious of his ministers. The Parisian mob by this time had its blood up. It fought with any weapons that came to hand. Muskets were loaded with type seized in the printing offices. At the Hôtel de Ville, Lafitte, Lafayette, and other leading men opposed to the policy of Charles X were assembled in council. The troops at first fought in their king's cause bravely, but without enthusiasm. 
subsequently the duke of wellington was asked if he could not have suppressed the revolution with the garrison of paris which was twenty thousand men he answered quote, easily but then they must have been fighting for a cause they had at heart End quote. the fight continued all the night of the twenty eighth bloody and furious by morning the soldiers were short of ammunition as usual the swiss guard was staunch but the french soldiers faltered about midday of the twenty ninth two regiments went over to the insurgents two peers were at this juncture sent to negotiate with the royal family the ministers with polignac at their head went out also to st cloud quote, sire said one of the negotiators if in an hour the ordonnance are not rescinded there will be neither king nor kingdom quote, could you not offer me two hours said the king sarcastically as he turned to leave the chamber the envoy an old man fell on his knees and seized the skirt of the king's coat quote, think of the dauphin he cried imploringly the king seemed moved but made no answer in paris marmont whose heart was with the insurgents endeavoured nevertheless to do his duty but his troops deserted him on learning this talleyrand walked up to his clock saying solemnly quote, take notice that on july twenty ninth eighteen thirty at five minutes past twelve o'clock the elder branch of the bourbon ceased to reign the louvre was taken and the tuileries there was no general pillage the insurgents contenting themselves with breaking the statues of kings and other signs of royalty one of the most obnoxious persons in paris was the archbishop the mob fought to the music of saira with new words c'est l'archevêque de paris qui est jésuite comme charles dit chanson la carmagnole dansons la carmagnole et saira there were deeds of heroism deeds of self-sacrifice deeds of loyalty deeds of cruelty and deeds of mercy as there always are in paris in times of revolution by nightfall on the twenty ninth the fighting was over it only remained to be seen what would be done with the victory the evening before lafitte had sent a messenger to louis philippe then residing two miles from paris at his chateau de neuilly warning him to hold himself in readiness for anything that might occur lafayette had been made governor of paris and thus held in his hand the destinies of france under him served an improvised municipal commune by this time prince polignac had been dismissed and the duc de montmartre had been summoned by the king to form a more liberal ministry everything was in confusion in the palace the weary troops who had marched to the defence of st cloud when the struggle in paris became hopeless were scattered about the park unfed and uncared for the king having at last made up his mind to yield sent the envoys who had been dispatched to him back to paris saying quote, go gentlemen go tell the parisians that the king revokes the ordonnance but i declare to you that i believe this step will be fatal to the interests of france and of the monarchy the envoys on reaching paris were met by the words quote, too late the throne of charles x has already passed from him in blood the king however confident that after such concessions the revolt was at an end played whist during the evening while the duc d'angouleme sat looking over a book of geography at midnight however both were awakened to hear the news from paris and then charles x's confidence gave way he summoned his new prime minister and sent him on a mission to the capital the duc d'angouleme however who was opposed to any compromise with rebels would not suffer the minister to pass his outposts the duc de montmartre anxious to execute his mission walked all night round the outskirts of paris and entered it at last on the side opposite to st cloud the city lay in the profound silence of the hour before day the question of who should succeed charles x had already been debated in lafitte's chamber lafitte declared himself for louis philippe the duc d'orleans 
some were for the son of napoleon many were for the duc de bordeaux with louis philippe during his minority as lieutenant-general of the kingdom Quote, that might have been yesterday said m lafitte if the duchesse de berry separating her son's cause from that of his grandfather had presented herself in paris holding henri v in one hand and in the other the tricolor the tricolor exclaimed the others why they look upon the tricolor as the symbol of all crimes Quote, then what can be done for them replied lafitte at this crisis the poet beranger threw all his influence into the party of the duc d'orleans and almost at the same moment appeared a placard on all the walls of paris Quote, charles x is deposed a republic would embroil us with all europe the duc d'orleans is devoted to the cause of the revolution the duc d'orleans never made war on france the duc d'orleans fought at jemappe the duc d'orleans will be a citizen king the duc d'orleans has worn the tricolor under fire he will wear the tricolor as king meantime early on the evening of the twenty ninth neuilly had been menaced by the troops under the duc d'angouleme and madame adelaide had persuaded her brother to quit the place when m thiers and the artist Harry scheffer arrived at neuilly bearing a request that the duc d'orleans would appear in paris marie amelie received them aunt to the duchesse de berry and attached to the reigning family she was shocked by the idea that her husband and her children might rise upon their fall but madame adelaide exclaimed quote, let the parisians make my brother what they please president garde nationale or lieutenant-general so long as they do not make him an exile louis philippe who was at rincy or supposed to be there for the envoys always believed he was behind a curtain during their interview with his wife and sister having received a message from madame adelaide set out soon after for paris the resolution of the leaders of the revolution had been taken but in the municipal commune at the hotel de ville there was still much excitement there a party desired a republic and offered to place lafayette at its head at saint cloud the duchesse de berry and her son had been sent off to the trianon but the king remained behind he referred everything to the dauphin the duc d'angouleme the dauphin referred everything to the king the dauphin's temper was imperious and at this crisis it involved him in a personal collision with marshal marmont in attempting to tear the marshal's sword from his side he cut his fingers at sight of the royal blood the marshal was arrested and led away as a traitor the king however at once released him with apologies when the leaders in paris had decided to offer the lieutenant-generalship of france to louis philippe during the minority of the duc de bordeaux he could not be found he was not at rincy but he was not at neuilly about midnight july twenty nine he entered paris on foot and in plain clothes having clambered over the barricades he at once made his way to his own residence the palais royal and there waited events. At the same moment the Duchesse de Berry was leaving Saint-Cloud with her son. Before daylight Charles X followed them to the Trianon, and the soldiers in the park at Saint-Cloud, who for twenty-four hours had eaten nothing, were breaking their fast on dainties brought out from the royal kitchen. The proposal that Louis-Philippe should accept the lieutenant-generalship was brought to him on the morning of July 30, after the proposition had first been submitted to Talleyrand, who said briefly, quote, Let him accept it. End quote louis philippe did so accepting at the same time the tricolor and promising a charter which should guarantee parliamentary privileges he soon after appeared at a window of the hotel de ville attended by lafayette and lafitte bearing the tricolored flag between them and was received with acclamations by the people but there were men in paris who still desired a republic with lafayette at its head lafayette persisted in assuring them that what france wanted was a king surrounded by republican institutions 
and he commended Louis-Philippe to them as, quote, the best of republics, end quote. This idea in a few hours rapidly gained ground. By midday, on July 30th, Paris was resuming its usual aspect. Charles X, finding that the household troops were no longer to be depended on, determined to retreat over the frontier, and left the Trianon for the small palace of Rambouillet, where Marie-Louise and the King of Rome had sought refuge in the first hours of their adversity. The King reached Rambouillet in advance of the news from Paris, and great was the surprise of the guardian of the chateau to see him drive up in a carriage and pair with only one servant to attend him. The King pushed past the keeper of the palace, who was walking slowly backward before him, and turned abruptly into a small room on the ground floor, where he locked himself in and remained for many hours. When he came forth, his figure seemed to have shrunk, his complexion was grey, his eyes were red and swollen. He had spent his time in burning up old love-letters, reminiscences of a lady to whom he had been deeply attached in his youth. The mob of Paris, having ascertained that the fugitive royal family were pausing at Rambouillet, about twelve miles from the capital, set out to see what mischief could be done in that direction. The Duchesse du Berry, her children, and the Duc d'Angoulême were at the Château de Maintenon, and the King, upon the approach of the mob, composed only of roughs, determined to join them. As he passed out of the Château, which he had used as a hunting-lodge, he stretched out his hand with a gesture of despair to grasp those of some friends who had followed him to Rambouillet, and who were waiting for his orders. He had none to give them. He spoke no word of advice, but walked down the steps to his carriage, and was driven to the Château de Maintenon to rejoin his family. The mob, when it found that the king had fled, was persuaded to quit Rambouillet by having some of the most brutal among them put into the king's coaches. Attended by the rest of the unruly crowd, they were driven back to Paris, and assembling before the Palais Royal, shouted to Louis-Philippe, We have brought you your coaches. Come out and receive them. Eighteen years later, these coaches were consumed in a bonfire in the Place du Carousel. At the Château de Maintenon all was confusion and discouragement, when suddenly the Dauphine, the Duchesse d'Angoulême, arrived. She, whom Napoleon had said was the only man of her family, was in Burgundy when she received news of the outbreak of the Revolution. At once she crossed several provinces of France in disguise. Harsh of voice, stern of look, cold in her bearing, she was nevertheless a favourite with the household troops, whose spirit was reanimated by the sight of her. From Rambouillet the king had sent his approbation of the appointment of the Duc d'Orléans as lieutenant-general during the minority of Henri V. Louis-Philippe's answer to this communication so well satisfied the old king that he persuaded the Dauphin to join with him in abdicating all rights in favour of Henri V, the little Duc de Bordeaux. Up to this moment Charles seems never to have suspected that more than such an abdication could be required of him but by this time it was evident that the successful Parisians would be satisfied with nothing less than the utter overthrow of the Bourbons. Their choice lay between a constitutional monarchy with Louis-Philippe at its head, or a renewal of the attempt to form a republic. The populace, on hearing that the abdication of the king and of the Dauphin had been announced to the Chamber of Deputies, assembled to the number of sixty thousand, and insisted on the trial and imprisonment of the late king. Hearing this, the royal family left the Château de Maintenon the next morning, the king and the Duchesse d'Angoulême taking leave of their faithful troops, and desiring them to return to Paris, there to make their submission to the lieutenant-general, who had taken all measures for their security and prosperity in the future. During the journey to Dreux, Charles X appeared to those around him to accept his misfortunes from the hand of heaven. The Duchesse d'Angoulême, pale and self-contained, with all her wounds opened afresh, could hardly bring herself to quit France for the third time. 
Her husband was stolid and stupid. The Duchesse de Berry was almost gay. Meantime old stories were being circulated throughout France, discrediting the legitimacy of the Duc de Bordeaux, the posthumous son of the Duc de Berry. He had been born seven months after his father's death, at dead of night, with no doctor in attendance, nor any responsible witness to attest that he was heir to the crown. Louis-Philippe had protested against his legitimacy within a week after his birth. There was no real reason for suspecting his parentage. Nobody believes the slander now, but it is not surprising that in times of such excitement, with such great interests at stake, the circumstances attending his birth should have provoked remark. They were both unfortunate and unusual. Charles X was the calmest person in the whole royal party. He was chiefly concerned for the comfort of the rest. The Dauphin wept, her husband trembled, the children were full of excitement and eager for play. Charles was unmoved, resigned. Only the sight of a tricolored flag overcame him. He complained much of the haste with which he was escorted through France to Cherbourg, but that haste probably ensured his safety. At Cherbourg two ships awaited him, the Great Britain and the Charles Carroll. Both were American-built, and both had formed part of the navy of Napoleon. The day was fine when the royal fugitives embarked. In a few hours they were off the Isle of Wight. For several days they stayed on board, waiting till the English government should complete arrangements which would enable them to land. They had come away almost without clothes, and the duchesses of Angoulême and Berry were indebted for an outfit to an ex-ambassadress. The king said to some of those who came on board to see him that he and his son had retired into private life, and that his grandson must wait the progress of events, also that his conscience reproached him with nothing in his conduct towards his people. After a few days the party landed in England and took up their abode at Ludworth Castle. Afterwards, at the king's own request, the old palace of Holyrood in Edinburgh was assigned him. There was some fear at the time lest popular feeling should break out in some insult to him or his family. To avert this, Sir Walter Scott, though then in failing health, wrote in a leading Edinburgh newspaper as follows. Quote, we are enabled to announce from authority that Charles of Bourbon, the ex-king of France, is about to become once more our fellow-citizen, though probably only for a limited space, and is presently about to inhabit the apartments again that he so long occupied in Holyrood House. This temporary arrangement has been made, it is said, in compliance with his own request, with which our benevolent monarch immediately complied, willing to consult in every way possible the feelings of a prince under pressure of misfortunes, which are perhaps the more severe if incurred through bad advice, error, or rashness, the attendance of the late sovereign will be reduced to the least possible number, and consists chiefly of ladies and children, and his style of life will be strictly retired. In these circumstances it would be unworthy of us as Scotchmen, or as men, if this unfortunate family should meet with a word or a look from the meanest individual tending to aggravate feelings which must be at present so acute as to receive injury from insults, which in other times would be passed over with perfect disregard. His late opponents in his kingdom have gained the applause of Europe for the generosity with which they have used their victory, and the respect which they have paid to themselves in their moderation towards an enemy. It would be a great contrast to that part of their conduct which has been most generally applauded, were we, who are strangers to the strife, to affect a deeper resentment than those concerned more closely. Those who can recollect the former residence of this unhappy prince in our northern capital cannot but remember the unobtrusive, quiet manner in which his little court was then conducted and now, still further restricted and diminished, he may naturally expect to be received with civility and respect by a nation whose good will he has done nothing to forfeit. Whatever may have been his errors towards his own subjects, we cannot but remember in his adversity 
that he did not in his prosperity forget that Edinburgh had extended him her hospitality, but that at the period when the fires consumed so much of our city, he sent a princely benefaction to the sufferers. If there be any who entertain angry or invidious recollections of late events in France, they ought to remark that the ex-monarch has by his abdication renounced the conflict, into which perhaps he was engaged by bad advice, that he can no longer be an object of resentment to the brave, but remains to all the most striking example of the instability of human affairs which our unstable times have afforded. He may say, with our own deposed Richard, With mine own hands I washed away my blame, with mine own hands I gave away my crown, with my own tongue deny my sacred state. He brings among us his grey, discrowned head, and in a nation of gentlemen, as we were emphatically termed by the very highest authority, it is impossible, I trust, to find a man mean enough to insult the slightest hair of it. Charles X was greatly indebted to this letter for the cordiality of his reception at Edinburgh, where he lived in dignified retirement for about two years. Then, finding that the climate was too cold for his old age, and that the English government was disquieted because of the attempts of the Duchesse de Berry to revive her son's claims to the French throne, made his way to Bohemia, and lived for a while in the castle of Prague. At last he decided to make his final residence in the Tyrol, not far from the warm climate of Italy. It is said that as the exiled, aged king cast a last look at the Gothic towers of the castle of Prague, he said to those about him, quote, We are leaving yonder walls, and know not to what we may be going, like the patriarchs who knew not as they journeyed where they would pitch their tents. On reaching the baths of Tüplitz, where the water seemed to agree with him, and where he wished to rest a while, he found it needful to move on, for the house he occupied had been engaged for the king of Prussia. The cholera, too, was advancing. The exiled party reached Budweitz, a mountain village with a rustic inn, and there it was forced to halt for some weeks, for the Duc de Bordeaux was taken ill with cholera. It was a period of deep anxiety to those about him, but at last he recovered. After trying several residences in the Tyrolese mountains, to which the old king had gone largely in hopes that he might enjoy the pleasures of the chase, the exiled family fixed its residence at Goritz towards the end of October 1836. The king was then in his eightieth year, but so hale and active that he spent whole mornings on foot with his gun upon the mountains. The weather changed soon after the family had settled at Goritz. The keen winter winds blew down from the snow mountains, but the king did not give up his daily sport. One afternoon, after a cold morning spent upon the hills, he was seized at evening service in the chapel with violent spasms. These passed off, but on his joining his family later, its members were struck by the change in his appearance. In a few hours he seemed to have aged years. At night he grew so ill that extreme unction was administered to him. It was an attack of cholera. When dying, he blessed his little grandchildren, the boy and girl, who notwithstanding the nature of his illness, were brought to him. Quote, God preserve you, dear children, he said. Walk in paths of righteousness. Don't forget me. Pray for me sometimes. End quote. He died November 6, 1836, just one week after Louis-Napoleon made his first attempt to have himself proclaimed Emperor of the French at Strasbourg. He was buried near Goritz, in a chapel belonging to the Capuchin friars. In another chapel belonging to the same lowly order in Vienna, had been buried four years before another claimant to the French throne, the Duc de Reichstag, the only son of Napoleon. On the coffin of the ex-king was inscribed, quote, Here lieth the high, the potent, and most excellent prince, Charles X of that name, by the grace of God, King of France and of Navarre, died at Goritz, November 6, 1836, 
aged seventy-nine years and twenty-eight days. All the courts of Europe put on mourning for him, that of France excepted. The latter part of his life, with its reverses and humiliations, he considered an expiation, not for his political errors, but for the sins of his youth. As he drew near his end, his yearnings after his lost country increased more and more. He firmly believed that the day would come when his family would be restored to the throne of France, but he believed that it would not be by conspiracy or revolt, but by the direct interposition of God. That time did almost come in 1871, after the Commune. End of chapter 1 End of section 2